Uh, we will have a short congregational meeting right after the service. Hopefully it won't take too long, so that'll be immediately after, the, after we get finished here. All right, let's open our Bibles to the epistle of 1 John chapter 2. And tonight I want to look at the second verse of chapter 2 and continue with a message that I began last week entitled, The Sacrifice That Really Satisfied. And I am, of course, speaking of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. And I mean exactly what the title says, a sacrifice that really did satisfy God for sin. Uh, Most of you, uh, well, I would think that all of you would wholeheartedly agree with that statement, that God was satisfied when Christ made an offering for sin, and there never was another sacrifice and never will be another sacrifice that needs to be made. And most in conservative Christianity believe that, or at least they they say that they do. And yet for all of the support that we have for that statement, there's actually a shrinking minority of people who really understand uh, what it means and really understand does satisfaction mean satisfaction. Most Christians, and by this I'm, I'm certainly talking about true believers, most Christians believe that Christ made atonement for the sins of all people, that Christ satisfied God for sin, and yet it's still possible that a satisfied God is not satisfied enough because something has to be added, uh, something that man does himself that makes the sacrifice of Christ complete or effectual for him. So he has to go beyond what Christ has done, whether by some good work. And those who believe that, uh, some good work actually helps satisfy God. They are not true Christians. But there are many, many uh, Christians, of course, who believe that what has to be added to the sacrifice of Christ is faith by the person who, um, who Christ died for. Well, we intend to prove through these messages that Christ saved all that he intended to save, and there won't be one of them that will be lost. And 1 John 2, verse 2 is a very misunderstood scripture, and the true theology of this either gets... Uh, consciously or unconsciously swept away in order to give man some part, even if it's just an infinitesimal part of his salvation. So we want to look at this scripture, and then we'll uh, continue with the message from uh, last week. Let's start at verse number 1. My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now we notice that the scripture tells us that Jesus is our advocate. And that means that he appears in heaven for us. Uh, Maybe a title that we could give him is our cosmic lawyer, that he defends people before a holy and righteous God. And when we sin... The blood of Jesus Christ, according to uh, verse, chapter number 1, verse number 7, cleanses us from sin. Or the effect of that verse is actually to say that it keeps on cleansing us from sin. So Christ then pleads his blood for the justification from our sins. Well, why does Christ plead the blood? Well, it's because the blood is what satisfies God. Now, verse 2 says that Christ is the propitiation for our sins, and that means that he is the satisfaction for sin and means that God actually took away, or Jesus rather, actually took away wrath that was on us because we have sinned. 
Now, I would submit to you that the precious blood of Christ is so meaningful and so powerful that it truly did satisfy God completely. And so there's nothing that ever has to be added to the blood and what Christ intended to do by that sacrifice is fully accomplished. And also we would say that there is no part of the sacrifice that Christ made that is wasted. And every person for whom Christ died truly does have his sins forgiven because of the blood of Christ and therefore he will not suffer condemnation. So those are statements that we're going to prove by the scriptures over the uh, next three weeks. There will be four parts to this message. And the third part of the message, which comes next week, we're going to look at the doctrine of limited atonement, or if we want to call that particular redemption. And we're going to see how that the ultimate conclusion of the matter is that God is truly satisfied by the sacrifice of Christ alone. But before we get to that part, there are other things that we have to take care of and consider. And this verse that we're discussing has been called a critical verse of Scripture, and indeed it is. Um, It's found in this little letter that John wrote towards the end of the New Testament, and yet the size of the letter in no way diminishes the power of the statement that John has made. So we began last week in the first message, uh, first part of the message, speaking of the satisfaction of Christ. He is the propitiation for our sins, is what John says. Now, propitiation is a very good Bible word. I don't know, I can't remember ever having that word come up in just a normal conversation with anyone. Uh, Usually, when we're talking about propitiation, we'll, we'll be speaking about something that has to do with the Bible. And in the biblical context, of course, it means that God is angry about sin and his wrath has to be turned away from us. And Christ's death is what satisfied God's anger. So God's justice was satisfied by the sacrifice of Christ so that his wrath is completely averted. But rarely today do you ever hear about God's wrath. Nobody preaches too much about that. Most churches would probably never even use the word propitiation or at least not use it like John uses it because they don't believe God is actually angry. And so they'll preach about love and they'll preach about acceptance by God. They'll speak of the tolerance that God has because they simply do not believe that God is angry at anyone. But the scriptures are very clear about this. You'll never understand God's love until you understand, or you won't understand much about God's love until you understand a whole lot about God's wrath. And that seems odd to say, but the love of God only shines out when you see how much love that it took for God to overcome his wrath and what God actually did to have his wrath satisfied. Now, the question then again is, why is God so angry? And the answer is given in previous verses. The prominent word we found in chapter 1 is the word sin. God is angry because of sin. We've broken God's law. We've defied him. And God in his holiness is not going to coexist with sin. Sin has to be dealt with, and that's what Jesus came to do. He came to deal with sin. And we also notice in the first message that Christ never pleads for us on the basis of our innocence. We have to admit that we're guilty sinners. There's always an admission of guilt. And if we don't, well, I can't say if we don't, but I'll say even Christ admits our guilt because when he appears before God for us, he doesn't say that we haven't sinned. He says, yes, we have sinned, and we are justly condemned because of that sin. Then we also saw that the lawyer accepts God's standard. He doesn't come and plead that God would lessen the sentence on us. 
God is perfectly holy and sin is purely heinous. And so there's no finite punishment that God could ever put upon man that could actually bridge the gap between God's holiness and man's sin. And so what Christ does, he's the lawyer that argues that we shouldn't be condemned because he has replaced us. In his life, he kept God's law perfectly and he washed our sins away in his blood. So God doesn't need to be angry at us. His entire wrath against sin was expended on Christ when Christ took the infinite punishment for our sins. So he really satisfied God. And that's what the word propitiation means. So then, if God's entire wrath was expended upon Christ, then there's none that can be placed against anyone for whom Christ died. Now, I want to move on from that last statement because that's very important for us to recognize. There is no wrath to be placed against anyone for whom Christ died. Why is that? Well, here we start with the second part of this, and that is the substitution of Christ. Christ took the place of the sinner. And I'm not going to belabor tonight what, the, what substitution means. I'll give you just a few examples, and I'm sure you know what that is. You go to the doctor, and he gives you a prescription. You take it to the pharmacist, and he looks at it, and he says, well, your insurance doesn't cover this. It only covers generic drugs. So I can't give you this. I'm going to substitute something in its place. Everybody's had that happen to them. The substitute is put in its place. They have substitutes in basketball games and football games, and, and you might use an artificial sweetener in place of sugar. That's substitution. That's the basic idea. Christ substitutes for us. So that means then that the wrath that should have been placed against us was actually placed on Christ. He suffered instead of us. So God poured out his wrath on him instead of the sinner or the one who trusts him. So that's the basic idea of substitution. Peter states it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. Now notice what Peter says here. He suffered for us. So he tells us that his suffering for sin was in the place of our suffering for sin. He committed himself to him that judges righteously. And that means that we don't have to face the righteous judge because Christ has presented himself before the righteous judge. Verse 24 says, He bare our sins in his own body on the tree. And that tells us that he was on the cross instead of us being on the cross. And then it says, By whose stripes ye were healed, his beating and his death did not heal him, of course, it healed us. So four times in these verses that Peter has given us, he's shown us the act of substitution. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 53, All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, interestingly, Peter follows Isaiah's pattern by writing right after the verses we just read, For ye were a sheep going astray, but now are returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. So Isaiah says, The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. I would, I'd like to branch off there and go into the next part of the sermon, but I'm going to save all that for next time with just a brief comment about it. 
And that is, who is Isaiah speaking of when he says, the iniquity of us all? Well, do I need to remind you that Isaiah is God's prophet? He's the prophet of God to God's people. So do you think that Isaiah would be comforting Israel because of idolatrous Gentiles? Well, certainly not. These are God's people. The all that he's speaking here of is all of God's people. And that's the consistent theme that we find throughout Scripture, that Christ did something for his people that he didn't do for anyone else. He didn't do the same for those that believe what he did, or that don't believe for those that did believe. And so if he satisfies God for their sins, God is truly satisfied, and Christ does in fact accomplish their redemption. But I digress, because I want to go back to what we are originally talking of. Christ is our substitute. Now we want to look again at this word propitiation, and also another closely related word that shows a picture of substitution. So first we'll talk about the propitiation for sin. Now in the last message I told you that John's usage of this word has a distinctly Jewish character. And that's very important to John's argument because he's mainly addressing here Jewish people. The Gentiles also had some idea about propitiation because uh, they also believed that their gods had to be satisfied. But the satisfaction made to those gods was for a very different purpose than what John is speaking of. Uh, The Gentile gods were angry for whatever cause, whatever it might be. Maybe they got up on the wrong side of the bed. I I don't know. But they, they were angry. And the idea that the Gentiles have is not that we have to satisfy the holiness and righteousness of God. What we have to do is buy God off. And so what we need to do is make a sacrifice to give us good weather or give us good crops or to stop a famine that might be in progress. And so they made their sacrifices not because they believed they had personal sins that had to be atoned for, but for all these other reasons. But when John uses the word propitiation, he takes these readers back to their heritage and he intends to show them that the rituals of the Old Testament depicting substitution... Are, is all, are also, or is also a picture for Gentile believers. The Jews were in covenant with God, and in the New Testament we find another covenant in which the Gentiles have been made a part. So that's why John says, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So he didn't satisfy God for Jews only. He also satisfied for Gentile believers, and we're going to get uh, into that next week as well. So what is the distinctly Jewish character of this word propitiation? Well, it goes back to instructions that were given by God in the Old Testament concerning the rituals that took place in the tabernacle. The most important piece of furniture in the tabernacle worship was the Ark of the Covenant. That's the most prominent piece that you find throughout the Old Testament. The Ark of the Covenant was just a little box, 27 inches long and 27 inches high, or rather 45 inches long, 27 inches high, and 27 inches wide. The box was made out of wood overlaid with gold. The wood represented the humanity of Christ, and it was overlaid with gold, which was a picture of the deity of Christ. And so you have in that Ark of the Covenant a picture that Christ is both God and man, 100% God and 100% man. Then on top of the Ark of the Covenant, there was a lid called the mercy seat. And the mercy seat was very important, and that's what actually gave the Ark of the Covenant its its significance. And the reason that's true is because 
what God would do at the mercy seat. Now, Exodus chapter 25 describes what would happen there. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. And there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. So here at the mercy seat, God met with the representative of his people. The representative was the high priest. And when God appeared there, he appeared in a light that we call the Shekinah glory. Now this you really have to get because here's where we come in with John's reference to the word propitiation. The same word that's translated mercy seat in the Old Testament is the word translated as propitiation in the New Testament. Let me give an example of this. When Jesus told that story about the a Pharisee and the publican, he used this word. And the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And God, be merciful to me, a sinner, means God, be propitious towards me. God, don't make me bear my own sins. Be merciful to me, the sinner. Well, there's an interesting little twist to that that's not often recognized when we read this. In the King James Version, it says, God be merciful to me, a sinner. When the statement was actually made like this, the publican calls himself the sinner. God be merciful to me, the sinner. And that's the real contrast that you find in the passage. Because what do you have? You have the Pharisee who appears before God and prays to him, and he thought that everybody else was a sinner. He's not a sinner, and he listed all the good things that he did. But when the publican came, he wasn't thinking about others. There's no reference to anyone else. He makes no point about what others have done. He's alone here, and he understood that he stood squarely in the path of God's wrath. That's kind of interesting because you hear people flippantly say things like, Oh, if I don't go and die and go to hell, that's okay. I'll have plenty of company there. And they really do not understand what it means to stand squarely in the path of God's wrath. But to go on here, the mercy seat is where the blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled and the wrath of God was appeased. So God was propitiated at the mercy seat, which is actually saying the same thing twice. God was propitiated at the propitiatory place. Now, I have a picture tonight of the... Uh, that we had in the tabernacle series that I did, did a few years ago. And this is the priest sprinkling the blood on the mercy seat. And underneath the mercy seat, down inside of the Ark of the Covenant, were the tables of stone on which God wrote the law. And when Moses went up on Mount Sinai, God gave him the law. He actually written with the finger of God. And Moses was commanded to put those tables down into the Ark. And we see a reference to this in Exodus chapter 22 when the Ark of the Covenant is called the Ark of the Testimony. And there I will meet with thee and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat from between the two cherubims which are upon the Ark of the Testimony of all things which I'll give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. So there is a reference to the law. And what the mercy seat did was to hide the law from view. It's the lid on top, the law is down inside, and the mercy seat hid the law from view. And the point here is that the sacrificial blood sprinkled on the mercy seat 
protected the people from the wrath of God because they had broken God's law. So the blood of the sacrifice substituted for the sins of the people and protected them from God's wrath. And this was a ritual that's repeated year after year on the Day of Atonement throughout the history of Israel. Now Hebrews explains to us how that all of that pointed to Christ and how that Jesus came to be the final high priest who makes a final sacrifice. Hebrews 9.24 says, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. And then in verse 12, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. So the mercy seat, this, this whole thing here that's taking place in the Old Testament is what John is referring to when he says propitiation. The wrath of God has been turned away from us and standing between God and the righteous judgment of God's law is the blood of Jesus Christ. That satisfied God for sins. Now the Apostle Paul also used the word in Romans chapter 3. It says, Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Now notice there that he says, for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. That's speaking of sins that were committed in the Old Testament. God was forbearing the sins of the people in the Old Testament because the blood of the sacrifice held them over until the once-for-all sacrifice could be made when Christ died on the cross. Well, there's another very closely associated word to this. It also demonstrates substitution, and it was also a part of the ceremony on the Day of Atonement. And that's the word expiation. And so we have the expiation of guilt. Now, expiation is different from propitiation because it relates to forgiveness and relates to the taking away of our guilt of sin. So it's not enough that God is simply appeased, that his wrath is appeased, but something else has to take place. Our sins have to be taken away from us. And the basis for our forgiveness and the taking away of our guilt is also the blood of Christ. And that was demonstrated in a special way in the tabernacle, tabernacle worship also. And so when John makes the statement, he is the propitiation for our sins, he would have in his mind this other picture as well. All of it comes together. Now I want you to turn to the book of Leviticus chapter 16, and we're going to read a little bit about this. Uh, Leviticus chapter 16. The day of atonement was not a day for just one sacrifice, but there were other sacrifices that were made. There was a sacrifice that was made specifically for Aaron and his family. And Aaron would go into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle blood for himself and his family. And then there's also this sacrifice that we're talking about for the sins of the people. But we want to notice something very special about the sacrifice made for the sins of the people. Now, verse number 6 in Leviticus 6, uh, 16 speaks about the sacrifice made for Aaron and his family. And then verse number 7 says this, or starts this way, And he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one, for the lot, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell, 
and offer him for a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him and let him go and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. So in order to get a complete picture of what takes place in Christ's substitution for sin, you have to have two goats. One goat shows one side of it, propitiation, and the other goat shows the other, expiation. So Aaron chose two goats, and with these two goats, he would cast lots. That'd be like throwing dice. And the lot that, the goat that the lot fell on is the goat that was taken to be sacrificed. And that goat would picture one part of Christ's sacrifice. And the goat that, you might say, won the lottery is not sacrificed. Now, the first goat, his, his blood is sprinkled on the mercy seat, but the second goat, it's not. Now, uh, look, at, look at Leviticus 16, 15. Then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring his blood uh, within the veil and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So, so the chosen goat has to die, but the other goat is treated differently. Now, if you ever wondered, where do we ever get this term scapegoat? Well, it comes from Leviticus 16, verse number 8. The other day, I heard someone on television say this. Uh, This person said, use the term scapegoat. Not scapegoat, scapegoat. And that can't be right. I mean, that's not the right term, because then that would be the opposite of what the word actually pictures. Because a scapegoat by definition, is someone who is punished for the errors of others. So the picture of letting uh, of this second goat is not that he escapes punishment, but rather that second goat is to show the substitutionary nature of Christ's work in expiating sin or taking it away from us. So our blame was placed on Christ. Now you go down to verse number 21 and you see this. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited, and he shall let go the goat in the wilderness. Now I have another picture for you, and this is the priest confessing the sins of the people on the head of the goat. And what we see in this picture is actually a demonstration of imputation. Now, I speak of imputation often in the sermons, and usually when I'm speaking of imputation, I'm talking about how that Christ's righteousness, his, the merits of his perfect life, are imputed to us for our justification. But there's another side of imputation. And so properly said, when we are teaching imputation, we actually believe in double imputation. And that is, as Christ's righteousness is transferred to us, the, the merits of his righteous life are transferred to us, at the same time, our sins are transferred to Christ, so they're imputed to him. So this is a, a picture of that confession of the sins on the head of the goat. So the sins of the people are transferred to this goat. Well, the parallel of that is in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's imputation. He was made sin for us. Now, not that he was made a sinner. That's not what it means. It means that our sins were placed on him. 
He's our substitute dying for sin. Now, the next thing that they did was to take this goat and lead him out into the wilderness. And the next picture is of that goat being led away. And he shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. There we go. And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities into a land not inhabited. And he shall let go the goat in the wilderness. So the goat is not actually a picture of someone who escapes. He's a picture of our sins being transferred to Christ. And then those sins being taken away from us. So our guilt is taken away. Again, I use this word catalog a lot. Catalog all that information because the picture here is the sin's gone. So there is no cause to, to condemn the sinner if his sins are gone and been satisfied. Now, the, the, the idea of expiation is beautifully backed up by other places of Scripture. And almost assuredly, this is what the psalmist had in mind when he wrote Psalm 103. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward him, them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Isn't that a wonderful blessing to think of? God is never going to remember our sins. So he treats us as if we have never sinned. And he does it for one reason and one only. And that's because Christ satisfied God's wrath. He propitiated God's wrath. And he expiated our guilt of sin. Now before I close tonight, I want to mention one other part. Since we're talking about sacrifices. Again, John says, And he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. So, in speaking of sacrifice, we need to talk about the place of sacrifice. Where is the place of sacrifice? Now, as I explain this, I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 13. On the Day of Atonement, the place where the sacrifices were made was very, very important. On all other days, and with all other sacrifices, with the exception of the sin, uh, the sin offering... The animals were burned inside the courtyard of the tabernacle. They were all taken to the brazen altar that was inside this linen fence that went around the tabernacle. But on the Day of Atonement, it was different. All the sacrifices on that day were burned outside of the camp. And the reason they're burned outside of the camp is demonstrated in John's statement that Jesus' death was not for Jews only, but also for Gentiles. Now, that aspect of Christ's sacrifice was not fully clarified until you get to the New Testament. And you can write down these references if you want to look them up a little bit later. Uh, Romans 16.25 and also the entire third chapter of Ephesians. And there Paul identifies all of what we're just talking about here, that the Gentiles would be brought in uh, as a mystery that wasn't revealed. And so Jews and Gentiles would come together in a body of believers that would be in covenant relationship with the Lord. So John mentions propitiation, which speaks to the Jewish audience, but he lets them know that there is a picture in the tabernacle worship, actually, of Christ dying for the sins of Jews and Gentiles. Now, if you found Hebrews 13, look at verse 11. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. 
Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. When they took the animal for sacrifice, and when they were through killing that animal, they burned up the animal completely. There was nothing left at all of them. Every single part of it was completely burned. And that was a picture that showed that when Jesus died on the cross, he completely, he was um, completely expended. Everything was taken out of him. His suffering went even to the depths of his soul. So that there wasn't any part of Jesus that was not affected by that, by his death on the cross. And Christ, being the God-man, was able to suffer what no man has ever suffered before. And no man could suffer. He suffered the infinite punishment of God. So they took the animal, the, all these animals that were sacrificed, outside the camp and they burned them. And when Jesus was crucified... They took him outside of the city walls of Jerusalem. And so when Jesus was sacrificed on Golgotha, outside of that holy city of God, that was showing that Jesus died not only for Jews, but he died for people of every kindred, every race, every tribe. He was a substitute for all believers, both Jews and Gentiles. So this is a very critical verse, isn't it? Uh, John ties... Old Testament teachings in with the new, and he affirms here that the sacrifice of Christ was, in fact, this part of it was, in fact, pictured in the Old Testament. And so long before, long before the Jews should have known that Christ would be a Messiah for every race and that his kingdom would include all nations, the mystery is they didn't know exactly how that was going to work because God stated all of this in different places in the Old Testament, but he never explained how it was all going to work that Jews and Gentiles would come together. And Paul had that mystery revealed to him, and he taught that. The apostles had that mystery revealed. So we're going to stop with that, and we're going to pull over here until next week, and then we'll take up again, and we're going to talk specifically about this question, for whom did Christ die? And what does the statement mean again? And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Did the sacrifice of Christ actually satisfy God, or did it not? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look in your word tonight. And Lord, uh, we thank you that we're able to have these pictures in the Old Testament and just the beautiful symbolism that was put there and that we can see how Christ fully satisfied you for sin and how that our guilt was taken away from us. Wrath is gone, our guilt is gone. And we thank you, Lord, for, the, for this sacrifice that Christ made for us. We pray that you would bless our people and uh, listening to the word. And we pray that everyone has been enriched by looking at it tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.